Well, the, the big one is coming. Now, if you have ever lived in California, you know what I'm talking about. Every year, there's about 10,000 earthquakes that shake California. Now, maybe only two dozen register over a 4.0 on the, uh, in magnitude, um, so it doesn't seem that compelling. But experts are telling us that there's a 93% chance that within the next 25 years, there will be um, a, a seven and larger potential, uh, 7.0 and larger earthquake along that San Andreas Fault, that infamous San Andreas Fault in the next 25 years. 93% chance. Now, that's based on, on historical records. Over the last 1,500 years, apparently, along that San Andreas Fault, there is uh, a 7.0 or greater earthquake that is registered every 100 or 150 years. Well, the last time there was a 7.0 or greater earthquake along the San Andreas Fault, if for you who are, know a little bit about American history, the last time was when? Some of you might have been living then. 1906. <laughs> that was 112 years ago. 112 years ago. So, you can see where they're saying the big one is coming. If a big one occurs every 100 to 150 years, and it was 112 years ago. And so if you have lived in California, I mean, they are fully aware of this. They're fully prepared Californians. Communities every year do their great California shakeout where they do the drills and stuff. Um, disaster kits for the home or in their car, they're purchased all the time. The uh, National Geological Society this year, 2018, is uh, trying to come out with their um, uh, early alert system uh, called the Shake Alert, and they're trying to get it developed along the, the West Coast. Um, Californians are prepared. They know, they hear it, the signs are everywhere. The big one is coming. Be prepared. But I'm wondering if the average Californian is prepared for the other big one. I mean, the real big one. I'm not talking about an earthquake. I'm talking about the coming judgment that Isaiah the prophet wrote about in the 8th century B.C. We've been studying through the book of Isaiah here at Fellowship Bible Church, and uh, we've been away from it for a few weeks. Um, but we're getting back into it, and it's chapter 24. And I want to ask you to take your Bibles or your Bibles on your smart device and turn with me to Isaiah 24. The big one is coming, Isaiah is saying in chapter 24, and he details it out for us in this chapter, which is part of a four-chapter section in Isaiah, chapters 24 through 27, that people often call the Isaiah Apocalypse. Look with me at verse 1. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants. The Lord will be, or the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. 
Verse 3, the earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled. The King James, New King James says, entirely emptied, entirely, utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. Verse 4 says, the earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgress laws, they violate statutes, they broke the everlasting covenant. And therefore, verse 6, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, and we were in um, chapters 13 through 23, I took that one big section. It was judgments that were being uh, poured out on individual nations or cities. Isaiah isolates individual nations, Babylon, Assyria, um, the cities of, of, of Babylon or Tyre or Jerusalem, Egypt. And he went kind of section by section, region by region, city by city, nation by nation, and talked about the coming judgments that were going to fall. But it comes to chapter 24, and 24 through 27, and there's this global sense, there's this universal sense. You can't miss it. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its service, scatters its inhabitants. Um, It's something that is yet to come. Look, behold, it's like he pulls down a screen. He's, he's playing this video, as it were. Look. And, and by the way, every time Isaiah says, behold, look, he's announcing something that is yet to take place. It's not happened yet. It's something from Isaiah's vantage point. It's coming. Behold, look. The earth is going to be devastated. There's something global that's going to take place in the future. Verse 3, it's going to be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken His Word. No one's exempt from it. It's going to to impact everybody. Verse 2 says, no matter what your station in life, whether you're a religious person or a common person, the the servant like his master, made like her mistress, the, the buyer, the seller, no matter where you are, rich or poor, of high status, of low status, it doesn't matter because the judgment is going to come, it's going to be universal, it's going to be complete. No one is exempt of this global impact of judgment. And why is it coming? Well, he tells us there in verse 5, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants, mankind, for they transgressed laws, they violated statutes, they broke the everlasting covenant. In other words, Isaiah is saying, judgment is coming because of sin, the sin of mankind. The heart of of man, there's sin in the heart. And it's as if he's saying God arises from his throne after millennia of of patience. And he, and he, he says, enough, enough. I'm going to pour out my judgment, my wrath because of the sinfulness of mankind. Verse 6, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. In the opening pages of the Bible, we're told that this is the very heart and character of God. In the opening pages, he tells Adam, the perfect man created, placed in that perfect environment of Eden, 
of all the trees, of everything in the garden you can eat freely, but don't eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden because on the day you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. I mean, God tips his hand right away that he is a God of holiness. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of justice. Obey me and live, he told the Israelite people throughout their history. Disobey me and die, because it's the very heart, the very character of God. He's a holy God. And Isaiah, really more than any other writer in the Old Testament, emphasizes that concept of the character of God, the Holy One of Israel. He repeats that phrase more than any other writer. A holy God, the Creator, is one day going to rise up and in His wrath against sin, global worldwide destruction, Isaiah is saying in chapter 24, the big one is coming. Verse 6, at the last part, you get the sense of severity when he says, therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Now in verses 7 and following, it's almost it's almost as if he uses humor here. I mean, Isaiah, the more I read Isaiah, the more I appreciate the way he writes and his literary abilities. And he comes in verse 7 and he says, The new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the reveler stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink Verse 10, the city of chaos, or as the King James says, the city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gate is battered to ruins in verse 13. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, like the shaking of an olive tree as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. you got this picture. Isaiah writes this. It's, you, you can kind of see it in your own mind, can't you? Here's a guy coming out in the street. He's got a, he's got a Budweiser in one hand, a glass of fine California uh, wine in the other, and he's staggering out in the streets, and all of a sudden, boom, the big one is coming. And it's like, wait a minute, this isn't fair. We were right in the midst of our narcissistic revelry. You're squashing the joy. God, what are you doing? Hey, we're, we're partying. This is life. This is, you know, these are the good days. What, what's happening? What, what right do you have to come in here and bust up the party? And the joy goes to silence. Because the big one is falling onto the earth. Gaiety ceases, joy ends. The city, verse 10, is in chaos, is in confusion. I think as Isaiah writes this, he's already talked about individual cities. I think he's talking about the city in the sense of, maybe in the sense of even how Augustine wrote it, the city of man. Man in his collectivized sinfulness, the city of man is being devastated. The world is thrown into confusion. 
In verse 13, he uses the imagery of the, of the harvest of the olive trees where the olives would be picked and then the remaining ones, the, the tree would be, be shaken so that the other uh, ripe olives would drop or the grapes would drop and you would pick them up. But there's always a few that remains on the, on the limbs, of, just a few that, that remains after the shaking. That's what he said in verse 6. They'll be burned, but a few men are left, only a few. After the violent shaking, there, there will be a few left on the tree. And I think that's who speaks starting in verse 14. Now, verse 14, that next little paragraph is pretty difficult to understand. Let me give it my best shot, but I think he's talking about the remaining olives on the tree, the, the, the few who are following God during this time of judgment. See, he's just finished in verse 13 talking about the shaking of the olive trees, the gleanings of the grape harvest of a few men left, and then verse 14 begins by saying, they raise their voices and they shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Who? I thought the gaiety had stopped. I thought the joy had ended. Not those who care about the honor and the glory and the holiness of God. As they see this unfold, I think they were the ones who used to cry out, God, how long? I mean, how long are you going to keep this up? How long are you going to kind of turn your back on the, on the inhabitants of the earth who, who just live in defiance to you? who just live for their, for their selfish selves, who give no thought of you, and then all of a sudden, the big one comes. And God pours out His judgment, and they glorify the majesty of God. Verse 15, Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea, and from the ends of the earth. We hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. God, your, your name is being vindicated. You are a holy God. You have accomplished what you said you were going to do. In the day you eat of it, you will die. And judgment is falling. But then Isaiah speaks. And as he's watching this scene unfold, as it were, as a vision, he says, woe, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously, the treacherous deal very treacherously. And it's as if Isaiah is saying, this is too much for me to bear. If what I'm seeing is true, if, if what I'm seeing is going to really happen, if God is going to come and lay the earth waste and devastate it, if few men are going to be left after the shaking, the violent shaking of judgment, and it's like Isaiah said, man, this is, I can't handle this. This is devastating. A holy God in response to the sinfulness of the world. Verse 17 and following, talk about the inevitability, the certainty of what's going to happen. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. And, and if you'll just indulge me a little bit, again, I, I mentioned how I just enjoy how Isaiah writes. And those three words, terror, pit, and snare, in the original Hebrew, it's pachad, pachat, and pach, pach. It's alliteration and, and another figure of speech, assonance. They sound the same. 
He does this from memory. He wants to, to sear this into people's memory. So he puts words that sound, pachad, pachat, pak, tear, pit, snare. And it's inevitable that people will fall into one of those. He says, verse 18, then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster, of the terror, they'll fall into the pit. If the terror doesn't get them as they flee, they're going to fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit is going to be caught in the snare. His point is, you can't run from this. This is universal. This is God pouring out his wrath upon this earth. You can run, but you can't hide. And it will catch up with you. The windows above are open. The foundations of the earth shake. Verse 19, the earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. Verse 20, it reels to and fro like a drunkard. It totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy against it, upon it. And it will fall, never to rise again. He says, make no mistake. The big one is coming. It will fall. And verse 21, it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the, the host of heaven on high, literally the heights of the height, and I think he's talking about even in the spiritual realm, to the kings of the earth on the earth. The totality of God's judgment in the spirit realm, in the temporal, physical realm of the earth, it will fall, it will happen. Because as God has destined it to be true. The coming worldwide judgment is going to be complete. It's universal. It is certain. He says in verse 22, they will be gathered together like the prisoners in the dungeon. They will be confined in prison, and after many days, they'll be punished. And then the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed. For... The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. You see, chapter 24 ends, after all this statement of universal judgment, it ends, as Isaiah often would do, with this little inclusion of, of hope. The king is coming. He's going to reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And the earth is going to be full of his glory. The king is coming. He has said this in many passages that we've studied already in Isaiah. Like, for instance, Isaiah chapter 9. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And with those words of hope in verse 23, the judgment and statement of universal outpouring of wrath comes to an end for the time being. Verse 23 is a bridge that hope, that, that kingdom, the Lord reigning. It's a bridge to chapter 25. 
See, chapter 24 is dismal. And such great contrast is chapter 25. It begins, verse 1, O Lord, you are my God, and I exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. The king is going to reign, and the people rejoice. Verse 23 of chapter 24 is that bridge verse that carries us into this, this exaltation of the people. Verse 2, you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It never will be rebuilt. Your holiness has been vindicated. Your righteousness has prevailed. Verse 3, therefore a strong people, they'll glorify you. Cities and ruthless nations, they they will revere you. They've been brought down to their knees before you. Verse 4, you have been a defense for the helpless, for the needy in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. The breath of the ruthless is like, like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat in drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. The people exult as God reigns supreme. This victory celebration then commences. Verse 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, of choice pieces with marrow and refined and aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. You know what that is? That's the pall of death, of sin, of destruction. And he's going to swallow it up. And when he does, the veil which is stretched over all the nations, when he swallows that up, verse 8, it says, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. God's victory feast is prepared, and people's tears will be wiped away, and the pain will be gone, and the joy will be, will be there, because the big one has come. Verse 9, the, the praises of the people continue. It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let's rejoice. Let's be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord, verse 10, will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trodden down. That's a figure for the sinfulness of mankind, trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in water of a manure pile. In verse 11, he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim, and the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. The apocalypse of Isaiah is coming. And then he will reign and people will rejoice. His name is vindicated. He's holy. He's righteous. He's the Lord God.
the truths revealed in Isaiah 24 and 25 are not isolated to Isaiah or his time. These are truths that are found even throughout the New Testament. This Isaiah apocalypse is verified in the teachings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter and John. This worldwide destruction was not just relegated to Isaiah's time. Yes, the Assyrian hordes were knocking on the door of Jerusalem, and we'll see that in a few weeks. Yes, all around was death and destruction, but we can't miss the words that Isaiah wrote in chapter 24. He's talking about worldwide destruction so that few men are left. It meshes perfectly with what Jesus said in his chapter 24, or Matthew's chapter 24. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. What Isaiah said in 24 of his book, what Jesus says in Matthew's chapter 24, I think are the same thing. Last fall, Don Didhart taught, taught us through the book of Second Thessalonians. And I've said this before, and I would encourage you to, to go back to that series. It's on our website, Recalculate. And his opening message, I think it was his opening message, August 20th of last year, I think it was entitled Back on Track. Um, he, he, he laid out a, in broad terms this, this plan of God that is talked about by Isaiah. This, this large scene, there's Isaiah seven, eight centuries before the time of Christ, prophesying of the, the, the child who will be born of the virgin, the son who will be given. And 700 years later, Jesus Christ comes to earth. And he came as a sacrificial lamb. He, very God of very God, stepped from the throne of glory, wrapped himself up in true humanity, and he took our sins upon himself, and he died in our place. He died for the sins of the world. And God the Father was pleased by the sacrificial payment of his son, for not one sin was left unpaid. He was raised on the third day, triumphant over death and sin and the grave. And he offers anyone who will receive it the free gift of eternal life. And that's the message that for 2,000 years has been proclaimed by the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And for 2,000 years, we've been living in that age, the church age, called to proclaim this good news in this, this sin-sick world of mankind whose inhabitants violate the commandments, break the laws of God, violate the eternal covenant. That's what we're here for, to share the good news about Jesus. But one day, the church of Jesus Christ is going to be removed. There's going to be a great taking away. Some call it the rapture. And then what Isaiah wrote about in chapter 24 and what Jesus mentioned in chap Matthew chapter 24 is going to take place. Judgment on this world, the wrath of God poured out, the likes of which the world has never seen, nor never will afterwards. 
upon the completion of that tribulation period, Christ is going to return. And what we read in verse 23 of chapter 24 and celebrate in chapter 25 of Isaiah, Jesus Christ will reign supreme. Isaiah, writing centuries before, sees this vision of destruction and death. In fact, it's very similar to what John wrote in his book, The Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Let me share with you some of the comparisons. Isaiah wrote in verse 2 that the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower. In other words, judgment will be no respecter of person. You can be a billionaire or a pauper, but there will be no place to hide. There's a day coming of universal judgment and a man or woman's position in life, their wealth, nothing will spare them. This is what John wrote in John 6. The kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave and every free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains of the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who, who, who is able to stand? And the answer is no one. Isaiah wrote in verse 6 that the curse devours the earth and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and there are few men that are left. And John wrote this, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire and men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed, they blasphemed the name of God. Isaiah wrote this in verse 7 and 8, the new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh, the gaiety of the tambourine ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. And John said that a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea and said, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will no longer be found and the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers will not be heard in you any longer. The party stops. The gaiety ends as the destruction begins. Isaiah said this in verse 10, the city of chaos, the city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. And John wrote this, Hundreds of years later, in Revelation 16, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. No one is spared. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 18 says, Then it will be that he who flees, the report of disaster will fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught by the snare. For the windows above are open, the foundations of the earth shake. And John wrote in Revelation 16, There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, so mighty. And huge hailstorms, about 100 pounds each, came down from the heaven upon men. 
And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Oh, the big one's coming. Isaiah wrote this, so it'll be happened on that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, the heights of the he- height, the spiritual realm, and even the earthly realm, the kings on the earth, and they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, will be confined in prison, and then after many days they will be punished. Remember what Revelation chapter 20 says? Then I saw an angel coming down from the heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him, and when the thousand years were completed, the devil dis- who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is what Isaiah said, verse 23, the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, and John wrote, I looked, and he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Isaiah said this, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, his glory will be for his elders, and John wrote this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Isaiah wrote this in chapter 25, verse 6, that the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. For all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, of choice pieces with marl, refined aged wine. And John tells us in chapter 19, he said, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Isaiah tells us in verse 8 of chapter 25 that he's going to swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. And He's going to remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. And John said, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, folks, as sure as we're sitting here or I'm standing here this morning, what we've read in Isaiah 24 and seen its connections in the book of Revelation is going to to happen, for the word of the Lord has spoken it, says Isaiah. The sinfulness of mankind, the rebellion against God, what we see having taken place since the beginning of the world, and maybe even more so now in these days in which we're living in, 
man's high-handed rebellion against God, breaking his statutes, violating his eternal covenant, breaking his laws. It's all going to come to an end because the big one is coming. And maybe you could sit there this morning and say, well, I don't know, that's ancient literature and mythology, and I don't know, it's not. And my word to you is you scoff to your own peril. It's coming. But there's good news. I, I could be mean. I could just end it with prayer right now and say, go be warned, be filled, and, <laughs> and prep away. But there's really, really good news. It's also told to us throughout the Scripture, but here's one verse from Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul wrote, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation or deliverance or rescuing through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, as we, live, we, we will live together with Him. And so therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing See, here's the good news. If, if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, on the authority of the Scriptures, we know that God hasn't destined us for wrath. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon His Son. Our sins are paid for. He died in our place. And if you have come to that point by simple faith in Christ, I mean simple faith in Christ, that's what it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but has everlasting life. The wonderful good news today is we can be spared from the great outpouring of God's judgment and wrath upon humanity globally. We can find ourselves safe in the arms of the Savior, in His presence, taken away to glory because Jesus Christ paid in full the full judgment that was due us. Have you put your trust in Christ as your personal Savior? Folks, there's nothing more serious than I can say to you today. And there's nothing more that I think God the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to you right now, you alone, speaking to you and your heart. You can walk out of these doors today with the doubt of where will you be when the big one comes. Or you can walk out of here today with the absolute assurance, absolute assurance because you've put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. You're not destined for wrath, but for salvation. I would invite you right now to settle that issue and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, what does that look like? Well, it means, do you believe what I just said? Do you believe it to be true? Christ died for your sins. He rose again. 
It's not a works of righteousness and good deeds that you do. No matter how good you are, you'll never earn a spot in heaven. Do you believe that? In the moment of faith, will you believe that it's God's grace alone, through faith alone, because Christ did all the work alone. In the moment of faith, the Bible says, you are given the free gift of eternal life. Do you believe it right now? I'm not going to ask you to bow your head, close your eyes, walk an aisle. Because after you bow your head and close your eyes and walk an aisle, you still have to believe. So sit right there and believe the good news. And receive the free gift of eternal life. And then live for him. Live for him. The big one is coming, and you may have relatives and, and friends and co-workers who haven't heard the good news yet. We're not to be a holy huddle, gather together, high-five each other. No, we're, we're, we're to take this good news and, and penetrate a, a, the world of, of humankind, of mankind that awaits the, the big one that's coming. We're to live our life to glorify God, to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Live in a way with compelling evidence that there is a Savior and that He's holy and He's righteous and He's going to perform what He said He's going to do. Let's live our lives in a way that honors Him. And let's tell others so that when that throng is gathered at the throne, when the King is seated on the throne, and the judgment is over. It'll be said, as it was recorded in Isaiah 25, verse 9, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. We can do it now, and we're going to be doing it then. Praise God. He's holy, he's righteous, he's got a plan, and it's right on time. Let's pray. Our Father, remind us often, while we're in the busyness of buying supplies for school and getting the kids' clothes to head for school and for going to work and for buying groceries at the store so we can eat tomorrow and, and getting our car inspected and going through the, the, the daily issues of living in this world. Remind us, Father, that the big one is coming. And as Peter said, remind us with that question as Peter asked, so what manner of, of person ought we to be in holiness? proclaiming the excellencies of Christ to a dark and dying and dead world. Um, stir in us, Father, a passion for you, that heart for you, to live for you, and to proclaim you. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.